Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors For my name's sake, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle, therefore, in your minds not to meddle beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. 
But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, as we attempt to understand what it is that your son is telling to your disciples, what Luke is trying to communicate to Theophilus in the writing of this gospel, and what your spirit is trying to communicate to us as readers of it. Father, we pray that you would turn on the lights in our dark minds, that we would understand it. That we would would repent where we need to repent. That we would rejoice before your word. We pray that we would be those who heed the warning of Jesus in the midst of turmoil and that we would not be quickly shaken and terrified by turmoil in the world and we would not go pursuing false teachers, false messiahs, false gods that offer us hope and answers that you have sovereignly chosen not to provide but that we would know that our hope is in the Lord and there is no more steady, sure anchor for our souls than that. And we would rejoice in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 20th century theologian and and actually one of the guys who started a magazine called Christianity Today, which many of you have probably heard of, his name is Carl Henry. Carl Henry once said this, the early church didn't say, look what the world is coming to. They said, look what has come in to the world. What's he getting at with that statement? He's saying that we have a tendency to be so discouraged by the way we see the world unraveling before us that we miss two important truths. First, We miss that the world, since the fall of man, has been falling apart around us. That isn't new. The world has been falling apart since the fall of man. The acceleration is so rapid that by the time you're in Genesis 4, just coming out of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's children are killing each other. The fall and descent into The unraveling and turmoil of the world is so rapid that by Genesis 6, the Lord is saying the world has become so wicked, I'm going to wipe it out. It isn't new that the world is in turmoil. The turmoils we face today aren't unique and unusual. They certainly aren't new. Second, what we're missing is that we have such a preoccupation with the world falling apart that that has caused us to miss what the early church focused on. That in the midst of all the mess, Jesus has come. See, no matter how much the world around us is unraveling, and trust me, in the first century for Christians, it was unraveling far beyond anything we currently experience here in the U.S. They weren't running around saying, what is the world coming to? They're running around saying, look what has come into the world. See, we have good news to share, and we need to focus on him, on Jesus, and talk about him. Now, now don't misunderstand me. I, I don't want you to misunderstand me. It is right to be concerned about the fallenness of our world. 
It is not a sin to recognize that this is not the way it's supposed to be. It is not wrong to hate sin and death and the havoc it brings into the world. It is not a lack of faith to want the evil and destruction in the world to be brought to an end. I've been at two funerals in the last couple weeks. And when I'm sitting in the funeral, I'm not thinking to myself, anything other than, I hate death. I hate sin. I hate the fact that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I cannot wait until Jesus returns and makes all things new. That's not a lack of faith. It's not a lack of faith to want the evil and destruction in the world to be brought to an end. We ought to desire that all things be made new. However, it is a sin. It is a sin to lose sight of the fact that our hope has come in Christ. It is a sin to worry and panic about the fallenness of the world. It's a sin because it betrays a fundamental distrust for the Lord to take care of us in the midst of this mess. And it betrays a lack of trust in Jesus to keep his promise that he would return. And now don't get me wrong, I am not saying that weeping over the condition of the world, that hurting about the condition of the world, that wishing the condition of the world were different is sin. That is not a sin. In fact, I would wonder what's wrong with the person who does not. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor and preacher in the 20th century in Great Britain, who's considered one of the great expositors, Bible expositors, at least in the last hundred years, wrote a book called On Spiritual Depression. He was someone who himself suffered with depression quite a bit. And one of the things that Martin Lloyd-Jones said is, if you find the person with the melancholy spirit, and then you find the person with the upbeat positive spirit, the person with the upbeat positive spirit is thinking to themselves, essentially, and this is a summary, so you know. He didn't say exactly this. Summary. is essentially thinking to themselves, all is great in the world. I'm so happy. And the person with the melancholy spirit is thinking, something's wrong with me. I'm sad. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's actually the person with the melancholy spirit who probably has a more realistic understanding of the world than the person who's optimistic. The person who's optimistic may actually be a bit delusional. There may be nothing wrong with the melancholy person who sees sin and death and corruption and feels in travail about that. What I'm saying is wrong is not that. What I'm saying is wrong is to panic and be fearful about those bad circumstances. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson rightly said, faith and panic can never be happily married. Yet it's our tendency to look at the fallen condition of the world and to begin to be afraid and to begin to panic. And because that's true, we also have a strong tendency to desire answers that God does not provide. Isn't that true? We sit in the midst of horrific circumstances and we say, God, we need answers right now. Why don't you provide them? We want 
answers so badly on the world scene that we actually want timelines and specificity and certainty that's not provided in Scripture. And because of that, we become easy targets for those who claim to have such answers. Did you know that most cults begin with a charismatic leader who can answer the questions the Bible does not? They can provide a certainty that you feel you need to have because you are fearful and panicking in the face of turmoil. And here's how it goes. The world is falling apart around me. There are earthquakes and wars and hurricanes. Evil abounds. People I love are dying. I'm bewildered by the mess I see in the world. I need hope. When is Jesus coming back? What are the signs that he's coming back? To which some false teacher or cult leader can tell you, I know the answer to that question. Come to my prophecy conference. I'll open the Bible and the newspaper and I will show you how all these things line up. I have a chart for that. You can put it up along the edge of your ceiling in your house right there on the wall. The Lord has revealed something to me that no one else has ever seen or known. I can show you a kind of numerology in Scripture that we can only find with computer technology. See, they've invented a computer chip that goes in your hand. Come to my church and I'll explain to you who the Antichrist is and how he's going to use that chip as a mark of the beast. You guys heard any of this stuff before? I was at a men's conference where the man told us he knew who the Antichrist was and it was Prince Charles, which was really kind of disappointing. (laughs) Really? That's it? I expected so much more. Listen, this is just all nonsense preached by wolves who are preying on your fears. Jesus knew that would be a problem for us. See, he knew the hearts of men like no other pastor, and he knew his people would struggle with panic in the face of a troubling world. He knew it. He knew the tendency would be to turn to religious charlatans who can offer a kind of certainty that Jesus was not going to give them. He was not going to answer all their questions. But Jesus commanded his people to trust him and not to run after men who provide false certainty. He knew that would be a temptation for disciples in the first century. He knew it, not just for us, but for them. And that's what's behind our text today. Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared for what they will experience when he's gone. He wants them to be ready. So Jesus provides them with the prophecy of judgment that's coming upon Israel. And knowing that they would associate every bad event in the world with that coming judgment upon Israel, and knowing that they would associate that coming judgment upon Israel with the end of the world and the return of Christ, he gives them commands as to how they ought to deal with what they see. And so that's what we're going to look at in the text. Let's look at the text, and let's start with the setting. Verse 5 I won't spend a lot of time in verse 5 and 6 because I preached them last week, but I just want to review them. Look at verse 5 of Luke 21. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said. 
So now, now here's the background. Jesus is about to speak, and what, what's the scene? Jesus has been in the temple teaching. These men are commenting on it. They're now east of the temple. Jesus is up on their mount west of the temple, looking east. Is that right? Anybody know? West of the temple, looking east? Yes, right? West of the temple, looking east of the temple. Thank you, John, who's been there. All right? And they're looking east toward it. And as they're looking at the temple, they're commenting on it, and Jesus begins to teach them. These are the disciples. And, he, and this is all happening in the last week of his life, and he wants to give them some understanding in the last week of his life. In fact, what he does is he gives them a prophecy. While they're standing there talking about the temple, Jesus looks at them and provides them a prophecy. Look at verse 6. As for these things that you see, that's the temple they're commenting on. The day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another. That's the temple that will not be thrown down. See, Jesus tells them as they're looking at the temple, there's a day coming when that temple will be destroyed. There's a day coming when Jerusalem will be judged. This will happen because Israel did not recognize the coming of the Messiah, but instead rejected him. If you want that, look at Luke chapter 19. Keep your hands there in Luke 21 and look back at Luke 19. Jesus has said this before. Looking specifically at verse 41. And when he, that being Jesus, drew near and saw the city, that is Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, there's a day coming when Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed because they did not see that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of every hope and every promise of the Old Testament, that it was all pointing to him. They didn't see it. They didn't want to pay any attention to it. They ignored him. They crucified him. And Jesus told them, as he wept over their lost condition, told them, judgment is coming for this city and for this people. And this temple will be torn down. And he's repeating that same prophecy here in Luke 21.6. So upon hearing that, this temple will be torn down, the disciples ask a question. And look at verse 7 for their question. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? Now, first principle of hermeneutics of understanding the Bible, Bible study methods, what do you do? you got to, what things? What are they asking a question about? The destruction of the temple that you just said. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place, i.e. the destruction of the temple in the city? When? What will be their sign? That's a really appropriate question, isn't it? Jesus just said, it's all going to be torn down. Their first thought is, When? How will we know it's coming? What will it look like when this happens? They're Jews. And I want you to understand this about the Jewish people in the first century. They saw the temple and Jerusalem 
as the center of their understanding of the world. This wasn't just like a church building somewhere. This was the the center of their understanding of the world. This is where God met with them. This is where God cares for them. This is where God ministers forgiveness to them. And they're thinking to themselves, you're going to destroy the temple? You're going to destroy Jerusalem? And they cross over, and this is the end of all things. Now, we don't get that in Luke, but we do get it in Matthew. So keep your hand there at Luke 21. And in a future sermon, I'll explain why we don't get it in Luke. But look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Keep your hand there in Luke 21, because here comes the way this question is asked there. Verse 3 of Matthew 24 As he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. He's just given the prophecy about the structure of the temple. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? You see, for the disciples, they made the immediate transition to the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city is also your coming and the end of the age. They just associate those things. You must be bringing an end to the world. That's what they're thinking. When are you going to do this? When are you going to bring an end to the world? What will be the sign that this is happening? Now, here's what I want you to notice. Jesus does not begin by giving them signs. He doesn't. He begins by giving them a warning with a command. This is an intriguing response because, see, Jesus' concern is the disciples first be warned. Look at the response, verse 8. And he said, see that you are not led astray. Does that ever catch catch you off guard? What will be the sign? Well, the sign will be this and this and this. No. What will be the sign? See that you're not led astray. Here's a command. And it's a command with something implicit underneath it, which is that I'm going to command you to do something that I'm a little concerned you'll have the tendency to do, which is be led astray. Don't be led astray. Why? For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. In other words, I want to warn you first off, Disciples, as you hear me talk about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the first thing you disciples need to understand is you don't be led astray by these people coming saying they know the time is at hand. Don't be led astray by them. Don't be led astray by these false messiahs. And then he goes on. Now look, he's going to emphasize that again. And when you hear of wars and tumults, Do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Don't be afraid of those things. They have to take place. The end won't be at once. Do you hear him? He's not saying, here's signs. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now look at the parallels in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. So turn to Mark 13. Hold your hand there. Turn to Mark 13. These are the parallel texts. 
I want you to hear the repetition of this same idea. Verses 4 through 8. Mark 13, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you, astray, no, no one leads you astray. You follow the parallel here? Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. Go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. See, what Jesus is saying is, I know you're going to see all this turmoil in the world and you're going to think that this turmoil is that end that I'm talking about of Jerusalem, that destruction of the temple and the city and what you're associating it with, which is the end of all things. You're going to think that this is that. And you disciples are going to think this turmoil is a sign that I'm about to destroy the temple and the city. But this isn't that. That's what he's saying. This is not that. These aren't signs of the destruction of the temple or the destruction of Jerusalem. And there will be false teachers who come, false messiahs who come and say, this is the end. This is the time. And Jesus says, don't listen to them. Don't be terrified by the turmoil in the world and go groping around for answers from those who offer you a false certainty and a false assurance. In the midst of turmoil, we are particularly vulnerable to false teachers. Why are we particularly vulnerable to them in the midst of suffering and turmoil? Because they provide a kind of religious certainty that makes us feel more secure. See, we don't want to trust the Lord's promises when we can't see how things are working out. And false teachers will work it all out for us, complete with timelines and charts. And we don't want to trust the Lord's word when we can't see how things are working out. But these troubling events are not signs of the end. They're not signs of the end. Jesus clearly says they're not signs of the end. They are the conditions of the fallen world we live in. In Matthew and in Mark, Jesus calls them birth pains. Paul actually calls them birth pains as well. 
They are birth pains because we're a world pregnant with sin and death because God's judgment for sin abides on us and we're experiencing the birth pains of that always. Look at Romans chapter 8. Keep your hand in Luke 21 and go to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to look at verse 18. Here's Paul speaking of the sufferings of this present time. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, that's Adam, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So because of the works of Adam, God has in judgment subjected the creation to futility. And it can't wait for the revealing of the sons of God. That is the resurrection from the dead. And he goes on. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know that the birth pains are always happening. Because of the fall of man, God has subjected the creation to futility. And so we die and are buried and the creation longs for the day that we will be resurrected and all things will be new. And not only the creation longs for that day, but we long for it. For the redemption of our bodies. But we're in the pains of childbirth until then. The whole creation is in those pains. It's just the beginning of the birth pains. Historian Will Durant in his book, The Lessons of History, has said that war is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In fact, it's only increased. He goes on to say, in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, keep that in mind, just recorded, only 268 years have seen no war. See, if you don't think that these conditions in Luke 21 are always going on in the world and always have, you're not paying attention to the world. And if you don't think that in the midst of these kinds of horrific conditions, we tend to panic and we tend to look for signs to give us certainty as to how to cope with it, then you're not listening to Jesus because that's his concern about us. He warns us, don't fall into that. I, do you guys remember the panic of Y2K? Not some of you were too young to be born, okay? Which is kind of a weird thing all by itself. But, <laughs> but some of you remember the panic of Y2K, don't you? You, you know, at the, when we were crossing over the end of the first millennium into the second millennium, people were panicking that it was the end then too and there was going to be great tribulation and all these kinds of things at that point as well. This isn't new, this kind of panic. 
But most of us got to, or many of us anyways, got to experience that kind of coming of a new millennium panic. I encourage you to remember in that time the many, many charlatans who came out with plans and answers for that occasion. I had people who were so angry with me, some even questioned my Christianity because I was telling people I thought it was a hoax. They should just calm down. You must not be a believer. What do you mean I must not be a believer? Because I don't believe in Y2K? Where is that necessary in the Bible? You must not be a believer because how could you not let people be warned and prepared? What kind of man would do that? I said, well, the kind of man who reads the Bible, who trusts what the Lord says in his word and trusts him and doesn't worry about these charlatans who run around with all these false warnings that now's the end. Jesus tells me, don't listen to them. If someone comes to you telling you the time is at hand, Jesus commands me not to listen. That's a command. Don't listen to them. If someone comes saying, this is the end, do not listen to that person. Could Jesus be any more clear about it? And what Jesus is driving home to his disciples is that they need to have poise in the midst of trouble because he cares for them. He has a hold of them. Don't get fearful and start running after all these charlatans who tell you they have all the answers because they don't and they are wolves who mislead you. Trust me. I will care for you. Don't be terrified. This has been the condition of the world since the fall and it will continue until I return to judge the living and the dead and make all things new. Don't fear. Don't panic. Rest in me. Jesus is saying, don't follow after false teachers who tell you they have all the answers. Those aren't signs of my coming. Those, even aren't, those aren't even signs of the destruction of the temple. Those are the birth pains we always experience. Unless you wonder if they were experiencing these birth pains in the first century, I need you to understand the, birth, the first century was fraught with wars and earthquakes and volcanoes. You guys ever heard of Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii and all? And famines. We read about famines in the Bible. In the New Testament, Paul went making a collection for the massive famine that was happening in Jerusalem. Do you think Jesus' warning had any application to the disciples then? When you see famines and there's a famine coming to Jerusalem, when you see that, it's not the end. Don't listen to people who say it is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul talks about collecting an offering for a famine that's happening in Jerusalem. In much of Acts, Paul is going around church to church collecting an offering for the famine that the church in Jerusalem's in. Don't you think there were false messiahs, false teachers out there claiming this is the end? Of course there were. If you don't think they were there, you're just simply not reading the New Testament. Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, I want to show you some of this in Scripture, that in the midst of turmoil, false teachers come, and not just in our era, but 
these warnings are for Jesus' disciples, them themselves, because in their lifetime, they experienced this stuff. Acts chapter 13, verses, look at verse 4. Same author as the book of Luke. Luke wrote Acts as well. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia. That's Paul and Barnabas, by the way. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So do they run into false prophets then? Of course they did. Go to Acts chapter 21. I'll just show you a few. Acts chapter 21. And verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? And here's what was said. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Didn't Jesus warn that these guys would come who were false teachers and lead you out into the wilderness? And yet we see it happening here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, keep going. Let's hear Paul addressing the church at Corinth with regard to these kinds of false teachers who would come in a time of turmoil. In verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. See, jealousy can be godly, apparently. Rightly ordered. I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Hear this? There are false teachers saying that they are the Christ or that the Christ is coming, and they're even referring to themselves as super apostles, and Paul is dealing with them. In the first century, that's why Jesus is warning his disciples, when you see all these birth pains, birth pains we still see this to this day, when you see them, don't listen to false teachers who tell you the end is coming, because that's where false teachers will seize their opportunity to take advantage of your fear and manipulate you and tell you they have the answers. Don't listen to them. They will lead you away from Jesus. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians, you can just keep going back toward Revelation and just stop at Second Thessalonians. I want you to see Paul talking to the church at Thessalonica with this concern. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, 
not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day the Lord has come. Hear the problem in Thessalonica? The Thessalonican church has heard that maybe they even missed the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord has come. And Paul's saying, don't listen to that nonsense. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's not too far back from there. You're in Thessalonians. You just need to go to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy chapter 4. When he tells, when Paul commands Timothy to preach the word, he says this in verse 3 of chapter 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is a steady concern of the apostles and Jesus, isn't it? 1 John chapter 2, go there. 1 John chapter 2. Actually, before you go there, just stop at 2 Peter. It's on the, it's on the way. 2 Peter is just before 1 John. 2 Peter and look at verse, or chapter 2 of 2 Peter and verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift, swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. You think there's a problem in the first century with false teachers? Leading people astray? Think there's a concern on the part of Jesus and the apostles that we not follow after them? I can find it in nearly every book of the New Testament. All, first John. That's just, I've just been going to different authors. First John chapter 2. And verse 18. Catch this, because this is said in the first century. You ready? It's said in the first century. Children, it is the last hour. I think the end is near. Yep. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle John said it's the last hour. The end is near. Children is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Jesus said lots of Antichrists would come. Lots of ones would come and say what? I am he. I am the Christ. This is the end. Follow me. Don't follow them. They're antichrists. Look at Jude. Let us get one more author in just to make the point clear. Jude and verse 3. There's only one chapter of Jude. It's the, last, it's the book just before Revelation. And verse 3. Behold, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, I wanted to write to you about something really positive like our common salvation. 
Though I wanted to do that, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Different heresy, same problem. People are apt to follow false teachers because false teachers tell them what they want to hear. And when we're in turmoil and trouble and distress and suffering and we're not getting any answers, it's an awesome opportunity for a false teacher to come in and tickle our ears and give us the answers and tell us this is the end and I have a chart for it and I can show you how. And what Jesus says is, do not listen to them. Don't listen to them. Don't be terrified. Don't be fearful. And don't listen to these false teachers. False teachers, false messiahs, will always rear their ugly heads to take advantage of your fears. They always will. They will always use the travails that exist this side of Jesus' return in order to scare people into finding their rest in them rather than in him. And we need to trust the Lord. We do not need to be frightened by what the world is coming to. We need to rest in and rejoice in the one who has come in to the world and who will return to make all things new the way they were supposed to be. So the question is, are you trusting in him? Are you looking to Jesus? While you're worried about the the end, have you considered your own end? Forget about the end of the world for now. What about the end of your life? Hebrews is clear that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You're a sinner, and God's righteous wrath bears down on you. And we will all die for our sin and face judgment unless we look to Jesus. Our only hope is Jesus. He lived the perfect life we failed to. He paid the penalty due to us on the cross. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And so we look to him and we're saved. He is our hope. He is our comfort. He is our assurance. He is our rest. He is our salvation. He is our help in every struggle. We need Jesus. We don't need timelines and charts and specific answers to every question. We need Jesus. So I pray we look to him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that that we would clearly understand what your Son was teaching to his disciples. Thus what Luke was communicating to Theophilus and your Spirit through them to us. That we need not be afraid or terrified by the troubles we see in the world. That we need not and we should not We must not follow after those who claim to have all the answers 
these false teachers who think they know the end of all things. Such an arrogant assertion given that your own son says he doesn't know. Father, may we avoid these men. May we trust in your son Jesus and his word. And we know that he's good, that he is near to the brokenhearted, that he is our ever-present help in time of trouble, that he is our hope and our shield and the anchor for our soul, that we don't need any other but him. May we cling to him and know that he is good. And Father, would he return again soon? Send your son back soon. We desire for you to soon bring an end to suffering and sin and death, to wipe away all our tears, to give us joy everlasting with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.